0: Hello doctors, this is Dr. Baliga here. This podcast is on plural disease derived from an outstanding chapter on plural disease in Baliga's textbook of internal medicine available at www.mastermedfacts.com. It's authored by Dr. Jeremy Richards, who is an assistant director of the medical intensive care unit at the Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center and an assistant professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School. His research is focused on cognitive development and clinical decision making, with an emphasis on the role of curiosity and its influences on critical thinking in medical learners. In addition to research activities, Dr. Richards is involved in numerous teaching activities involving medical students and residents He is a recipient of several teaching awards, including the Harvard Medical School Excellence in Tutoring Award and the Herman L. Blumgaard Faculty Award. The senior author is Dr. Richard M. Schwartzstein, who is the Chief of the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine at the Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center and the Ellen and Melvin Gordon Professor of Medicine and Medical Education at Harvard Medical School He directs one of the two national centers for study and treatment of dyspnea. His research has focused on the basic physiology of respiratory sensations and has led to a greater understanding of distinct qualitative aspects of dyspnea, the links between verbal phrases used by patients to describe their breathing discomfort and the underlying pathophysiologic disorders causing dyspnea. Dr. Schwartzstein has a strong interest in medical education and directs the course Integrated Human Physiology for Medical Students at Harvard Medical School. He also serves as the Faculty Associate Dean for Medical Education and is the Director of the Academy at Harvard Medical School. By the time the listener finishes listening the 11 podcasts on plural disease from this outstanding chapter the listener should have a solid foundation in the approach and management of pleural disease. Lined by the visceral and parietal pleura, the pleural space is a potential space between the lungs and the chest wall. In a healthy individual, a small amount of fluid lubricates the opposing pleural surfaces and allows for smooth mechanical coupling of the lung and chest wall. Disruptions in the interface between the visceral and parietal pleura can result in impaired functioning of the respiratory pump, that is the movement of the lungs, as the lungs and chest wall are no longer linked in an efficient manner. Systemic consequences include increased work of breathing, hypoxemia, chest pain, and hemodynamic compromise may ensue. Numerous pathologic processes can affect the integrity of the pleura, apposition, and can result in changes of the pleural space. This podcast will review the normal anatomy and physiology of the pleural space necessary to understand abnormalities of the pleura, but will primarily focus on pleural disease and relevant pathophysiology. Anatomy. The visceral pleura is adhered to the external surface of the lungs, including the fissures between the lobes of the lung. The parietal pleura lines the chest wall and is in direct opposition to the visceral pleura. The right and left hemithorax are separate anatomic spaces divided by the mediastinum and the anterior pleural reflection. This separation is important in considering the local effects of diseases and how a pathologic process may affect the pleural space of one but not the other hemithorax the parietal pleura is slightly thinner than the visceral pleura approximately 10 to 20 microns stomata are present on the parietal pleura surface to facilitate lymphatic drainage of excess fluid in the pleural space the visceral pleura do not have stomata. Fluid flows from the visceral and parietal pleural surfaces into the pleural space and is largely removed by the parietal pleura. Under normal conditions, there's a small volume of fluid with low concentration of protein, that is transudative fluid in the pleural space to facilitate movement of the pleural surfaces against each other during respiration the normal volume of the fluid has been estimated to be between 0.3 mL per kilo and 0.26 mL per kilo, or about nine to 18 mils in both hemithoraces in a 70 kg adult. Physiology, the volume of the fluid in the pleural space is maintained by a balance between fluid production and lymphatic drainage. Starling forces are critical in determining the volume of the fluid within the pleural space. Fluid movement into the pleural space is determined by the balance between hydrostatic and oncotic pressures in the visceral and parietal pleural capillaries and capillary permeability. Removal of the fluid depends primarily upon lymphatic drainage. A 70 kilo adult typically produces 0.01 mils per kilo per hour, that is about 50 to 20 mils per day of pleural fluid. The lymphatic drainage system of the pleura can drain up to approximately 500 mils of fluid per day. The capacity for increased lymphatic drainage provides some flexibility of this system to accommodate disease processes that lead to increased fluid production thereby mitigating disruptions in pleural opposition and respiratory system function. The connection between the visceral and parietal pleura via the potential space between these pleural surfaces is important in maintaining the balance of forces between the chest wall, which tends to expand at most lung volumes, and the lungs, which tends to collapse at all lung volumes. Disruptions in apposition between the visceral and parietal pleura can cause uncoupling of these expanding and collapsing forces. For air to flow into the lung, the outward movement of the chest wall must produce a drop in the pleural pressure which is transmitted to the alveoli. Negative alveolar pressure results in a pressure differential that, that drives air from the mouth into the lungs. In the upright posture the pleural pressure is more negative at the apex of the hemithorax as compared to the base due to the weight of the lung the pleural space is squeezed at the base between the lung and the chest wall this difference in pleural pressure results in larger alveoli at the apices than at the bases at end exhalation or functional residual capacity and more volume going to the bases as compared to the apices during inhalation. Pathophysiology While there are many pathologic conditions that can affect the pleural space, the classic and the most common example of pleural disease is the pleural effusion, that is, the accumulation of excess fluid in the pleural space, accumulation of air, pneumothorax, malignancy such as mesothelioma, lung cancer and metastasis and scarring of fibrosis resulting in trapped lung are pathologic processes that may not be associated with the pleural effusion. pleural effusion, while a small amount of transudative fluid is present in the pleural space under normal conditions, fluctuations in stalling forces can result in excess pleural fluid accumulation. Specifically, aberrations in three different aspects of stalling forces may result in fluid accumulation. First, intravascular pressure changes, such as increases in capillary hydrostatic pressure, example in heart failure, and/or decreases in capillary oncotic pressure, example cirrhosis with hypoalbuminemia, result in an imbalance of starting forces and lead to more than 500 mils per day of fluid accumulation in the pleural space. Second, increased capillary permeability. Example, pleural inflammation, that is from pneumonia, can result in increased capillary permeability, increased leakage of fluid in, into the pleural space and a pleural effusion. Thirdly, impaired lymphatic drainage. Lymphatic drainage can be impaired in the setting of lymphatic malignancy or thoracic duct pathology, resulting in decreased capacity that is less than 500 ml per day for clearance of pleural fluid and a consequent pleural effusion. Fluid that accumulates from increased capillary hydrostatic or decrease oncotic pressure, tends to have a relatively low protein concentration. The intact capillary endothelium and prudel surfaces prevent passage of protein between the cells. Fluid moves from the vascular space to the prudel space due to fluctuations in intravascular pressures. This low protein fluid is referred to as transudative fluid. Fluid that accumulates due to impaired capillary permeability is referred to as exudative fluid. Exudative fluid has a relatively high protein concentration. Impaired capillary endothelium is inflamed and our carcinomatous plural surfaces allow intravascular proteins to leak into the plural space. Malignancies involving the pleura may also lead to production of protein rich fluid. Pleural fluid may be characterized as transudative or exudative using Light's criteria. Accumulation of fluid in the pleural space increases pleural pressure due to the weight of the fluid which can also lead to compression atelectasis as transmural pressure across the alveolus has become negative at the functional residual capacity. The consequences of atelectasis may include hypoxemia, shunt physiology may develop and increased work of breathing where more effort is required to expand collapsed areas of lung and or maintain minute ventilation in the setting of decreased alveolar volume Dyspnea frequently accompanies moderate to large pleural effusions. The accumulation of pleural fluid causes the chest wall to be pushed out and the lung to be compressed for every liter of pleural fluid. Chest wall volume is increased by approximately 0.5 liters and the lung volume is decreased by 0.5 liters. The expanded chest wall leads to shortening of inspiratory muscles and decreased chest wall compliance. Both increase the work of breathing. In addition, stimulation of pulmonary stretch receptors due to lung compression can also contribute to dyspnea. Finally, patients with pleural effusions may have worsened dyspnea when lying down as redistribution of pleural fluid results in worsened VQ mismatch and recumbent dyspnea although hypoxemia may be associated with moderate to large pleural effusions. Low partial pressure oxygen is probably not the primary cause of the dyspnea. The addition of supplemental oxygen to inspired air does not usually relieve dyspnea due to effusions, while removal of fluid leads to rapid improvement. Pneumothorax. Pneumothorax is the accumulation of air in the pleural space. Pressure within the pleural space is lower, that is more negative during inspiration, than pressure within the airways and alveoli. So a communication between the alveoli and the pleural space results in air flowing from higher pressure, that is the alveoli, to lower pressure, the pleural space. Pneumothoraxes are clinically classified as primary or spontaneous secondary, associated with underlying lung disease, or traumatic, which is either iatrogenic or non-iatrogenic. The pathophysiology of primary pneumothorax is not completely understood, but spontaneous rupture of a bulla or subplural bleb is a frequently cited explanation. The thin-walled bulla or bleb is at increased risk of rupturing due to over and increase wall stress. The rupture results in a flow of air from the airways to the prural space. Secondary pneumothorax may occur due to rupture of a bulla or bleb in the presence of lung pathology such as emphysema, cystic fibrosis or asthma. Pulmonary infections may predispose patients to communications between airways and the prural space. Necrotizing pneumonia, TB, and pneumocystis carni pneumonia, characterized by pulmonary parenchymal cystic changes, are most commonly associated with the secondary pneumothorax. The pathophysiologic consequence of air in the pleural space is an uncoupling of the visceral and par- parietal pleura. Lung collapse may occur. And the resting volume of the chest wall increases. Tension pneumothorax refers to the rapid and progressive accumulation of air in the pleural space in excess of alveolar and atmospheric pressures, typically characterized by a ball wall phenomenon in which air flows into the pleural space during inspiration but not out of the pleural space during expiration. Tension pneumothorax causes decreased venous return to the right heart and hypotension as well as VQ mismatch and hypoxemia and is a medical emergency. Patients who suffer a pneumothorax while receiving positive pressure ventilation are particularly at risk for tension pneumothorax and should have a chest tube inserted to remove air. Prompt evacuation of a tension pneumothorax with the 14 gauge angiocath urgently placed anteriorly in the second intercostal space is critical. Plural malignancies. While malignant mesothelioma is a primary plural malignancy, non pleural malignancies can metastasize to the pleural surfaces. Plural malignancies can cause pleural effusions, typically exudative, but can also directly affect chest wall compliance and thereby result in symptoms such as dyspnea and chest pain. Tumor involvement of the parietal and or visceral pleura can also affect the apposition of the pleural surfaces and the relationship between the lungs and chest wall. Trapped lung and lung entrapment. Trapped lung and lung entrapment are terms for separate but related processes that lead to an inability to fully expand the lung despite removal of air and fluid from the pleural space. Trap lung describes excessive visceral thickening and scarring following an inflammatory process resulting in marked decrease in visceral pleural compliance. As the chest wall expands during inspiration, the pressure within the pleural space becomes progressively negative since the lung is trapped by the scarred visceral pleura and cannot expand. Transudative fluid may accumulate as hydrostatic forces are affected. Lung entrapment refers to incomplete re-expansion of the lung due to primary lung pathology in the setting of active pleural inflammation. It is distinct from trapped lung in that the lung entrapment does not imply permanent changes in plural compliance. Lung entrapment may be temporary and may resolved with the treatment of underlying conditions that is pneumonia, endobronchial obstruction or malignancy. If the associated plural or pulmonary condition is untreated or untreatable, lung entrapment may progress to trapped lung. Lung entrapment is associated with and exudative pleural Since pleural information results in the accumulation of protein-rich fluid in the pleural space, lung entrapment is physiologically characterized by decreased compliance to the lung after draining of the exudative fluid. Lung entrapment can be diagnosed by measuring pleural elastance during thoracosynthesis. Pleural elastance is specifically defined as the ratio between the change in pressure in the pleural space for a given change in the volume of the lungs. Principal causes of pleural effusion. Cause of pleural effusions are typically stratified by the characteristics of fluid that is transudative versus exudative. Transudative effusions. A transudative effusion typically reflects an alteration to the balance of Starling forces. If hydrostatic pressure in the capillaries is increased or oncotic pressure is decreased, more fluid exits than enters the capillaries as blood moves from the arterial to the venous system. Because the integrity of capillary endothelium is intact, minimal protein is found in the fluid. The most common causes of Transudative pleural effusion are congestive heart failure, cirrhosis and nephrotic syndrome. In congestive heart failure, elevated pulmonary capillary hydrostatic pressures with intact capillary permeability result in extravasation of protein-free fluid from the vascular space into the pleural space. In cirrhosis, decreased serum albumin due to impaired hepatic synth- synthetic function Results in decreased capillary oncotic pressures and accumulation of fluid in the peritoneum that is ascites, and pleural spaces. Ascitic fluid may pass from the peritoneum across the diaphragm into the pleural space. This phenomenon is referred to as hepatic hydrothorax. Ascitic fluid passes from the peritoneum to the pleural space through several possible mechanisms. Fluid may leak through the intrinsic diaphragmatic defects at the insertion side of the diaphragm to the chest wall or at the diaphragmatic crura. Alternatively, fluid may pass through lymphatic channels within the diaphragm itself. And finally, engorgement of and leaking from the thoracic duct can result in transfer of fluid from the peritoneal to the thoracic cavity. Since The intrathoracic pressure is negative throughout the resting breathing cycle and becomes increasingly negative during inspiration and intra-abdominal pressure is positive and becomes more positive with the descent of the diaphragm during inspiration. Each respiratory cycle favors movement of fluid from the peritoneum to the pleural space. The motion of the thorax essentially creates a pumping action for the movement of fluid. In nephrotic syndrome, decreased serum albumin due to pathologic urinary excretion of albumin results in decreased capillary oncotic pressure and fluid accumulation in the pleural space. More esoteric causes of transudative pleural effusion include SVC syndrome, embolism, and chronic atelectasis which is due to, in, all the, these are due to increased hydrostatic pressure. Hypoalbuminemia, mixed edema and peritoneal dialysis, which are due to decreased oncotic pressure. And urinothorax, extravasation of intravenous catheter and malfunctioning ventricular peritoneal shunt, which are due to introduction of low protein fluid in the pleural space. In any of these conditions, fluid accumulation must overwhelm the capacity of the pleural lymphatics to drain the fluid for a pleural effusion to develop. Exudative effusions. Exudative effusions are the consequence of inflammation of the pleural surfaces, obstruction of the lymphatic system draining the pleura, or deposits of tumor on the pleura. In each of these cases, there is increased capillary permeability and leakage of protein-rich fluid from the intravascular space to the pleural space. The most common causes of an exudative pleural effusion are pneumonia, malignancy, collagen vascular diseases, pancreatitis, and permeambulism. In pneumonia, focal inflammation in the lung parenchyma often extends to the visceral pleural surface, leading to a local and systemic inflammatory response with resultant capillary leak, impaired drainage due to lymphatic obstruction, and increased fluid production, which results in a movement of protein rich fluid from the intravascular space to the pleural space. When this occurs with radiographic evidence of pneumonia, it is referred to as paranemonic effusion. Paranemonic effusions are characterized by their size, the presence of bacteria on gram stain or culture, and the pleural fluid pH and glucose. Paranemonic effusions may be classified as category 1, 2, or 3 based on these parameters. Category 3 or complicated paranemonic effusions are associated with a moderate risk of poor clinical outcome and should be drained. If the fluid has a white blood cell count equal to or greater than 50,000 that is grossly appearing as pus, it is referred to as empyema. An empyema must be drained to achieve infectious source control. Category 1 paramedic effusion. Typically, the size is less than 10 millimeters on lateral decubitus X-ray. The, uh, the gram stain and culture may be unknown. The plural fluid pH is unknown. The likelihood of a poor outcome is very low and drainage is not indicated. In Category 2 Paranemonic effusion which is greater than 10 mm and less than half the hemithorax, gram stain and culture may be negative, pH is around 7.2. The likelihood of a poor outcome is low and again drainage is not indicated. Category 3 or complicated is more than half the hemithorax thorax, related or with thickened pleura. Gram stain and culture may be positive. Cell count, that is the white blood cell count, is typically 25 to 50,000 in the pleural fluid. Pleural fluid chemistry, the pH is less than 7.2. The likelihood of a poor outcome is moderate and drainage of the pleural fluid is indicated. Category four, Paranemonic effusion or Empyema is more than half the hemithorax, loculated or with thickened pleura. Gram stain and culture may be positive. Cell count of the pleural fluid, that is white blood cell count is typically greater than 50,000. pH is less than 7.2. And the likelihood of a poor outcome is high and pleural fluid drainage is indicated. In malignancies, cancers involving the pleura, including primary pleural cancer such as mesothelioma or metastasis such as lung, breast and lymphoma can result in increased capillary permeability and accumulation of oxidative effusion. Collagen vascular diseases, rheumatoid arthritis and systemic lupus erythematosus, SLE, are associated with pulmonary, pleural and systemic inflammation which can result in increased capillary permeability and an exudative effusion. Pancreatitis Regardless of the cause of pancreatitis, the associated local and systemic inflammation can result in pleural capillary leak primarily at the right lung base given the anatomic association with the pancreas itself and an exudative effusion. Pulmonary embolism, Pulmonary embolism frequently results in an exudative pleural effusion, as pulmonary inflammation and necrosis can lead to accumulation of fibrin-rich fluid in the pleural space. Of note, pulmonary embolism can occasionally cause a transudative effusion. There are many more esoteric causes of exudative pleural effusions, the vast majority of which are associated with local or systemic inflammation resulting in capillary leak and accumulation of protein-rich fluid in the pleural space. Of particular importance, exudative effusions are very common after cardiac surgery due to mechanical disruption of the pleural capillaries due to performing sternotomy and dissecting the parietal and visceral pleura overlying the mediastinum. While relatively rare in the US, tuberculosis is an important worldwide cause of pleural effusion, some historical estimates indicate that up to 25% of patients with primary pulmonary tuberculosis will develop an exudative effusion. Keys to history: pleural diseases may present in an acute, subacute, or chronic manner depending on the specific underlying disease process. A spontaneous neuromothorax, for example, may present with acute onset of chest pain and dyspnea. Alternatively, malignant mesothelioma may present with gradual, progressive dyspnea and exertion, weight loss and fatigue. While the pace of symptoms associated with diseases can vary, respiratory symptoms are common. There are likely several pathophysiologic processes contributing to dyspnea in patients with pleural diseases and specifically patients with pleural effusions. Chest pain can occur particularly when the parietal pleura, which is innervated, is inflamed, resulting in nociceptive signaling and ipsilateral chest pain. Other symptoms relate to the specific underlying pleural disease process. Fever may occur in patients with pneumonia and a parapneumonic effusion or empyema. Anorexia and unintentional weight loss may occur in patients with pleural malignancy. Ascitus and jaundice may occur in patients with cirrhosis and hepatohydrothorax. Physical examination. The pulmonary exam is critical in identifying the presence of pleural disease and in differentiating specific causes of pleural pathology. On observation, asymmetric expansion of the chest may be noted in patients with unilateral pleural pathology as disruption of normal visceral and parietal pleural apposition results in a decoupling of the collapsing tendency of the lungs and the expanding tendency of the chest wall as such the effects of changes in pleural and transpulmonary pressures during inspiration and expiration may be reduced resulting in ipsilateral decreased lung expansion during inspiration in addition The presence or absence of concavity or inward movement of the intercostal spaces during inspiration may be observed. Concavity may be present or exaggerated in a patient with a disease process resulting in decrease that is more negative pleural pressures. Example trapped lung and airway obstruction. Convexity may be present in a patient with increased pleural pressures, that is tension pneumothorax. On palpation, tactile fremitus is reduced or not present over pleural effusion. Reduced tactile fremitus, as compared to normal lung is expected in patients with a pleural effusion. Normal tactile fremitus is associated with a decreased likelihood of pleural effusion. That is the sign has a high negative predictive value. Auscultation, in patients with a free flowing pleural effusion, Decreased by breath sounds will be noted when auscultating a patient in an upright seated position. The ipsilateral decrease in breath sounds is due to atelectasis of the lung adjacent to the pleural effusion and or muffling of sound as it traverses the fluid. Crackles may be heard at the superior aspect of the effusion in some patients. Egophony is typically absent directly over a pleural effusion due to decreased transmission of low pitch sounds through pleural fluid however one can hear egophony at the superior aspect of effusion particularly in the setting of low-bar consolidation such as pneumonia or paraneumonic effusion or in effusion related atelectasis occasionally in the setting of a small amount of pleural fluid with pleural inflammation A plural rub may be auscultated. On percussion, dullness to percussion is the most accurate physical exam for diagnosing a plural effusion. In one meta-analysis, dullness to percussion was associated with a positive likelihood ratio for plural effusion of 8.7 That is, 95% confidence interval from 2.2 to 33.8. Radiologic findings An in depth discussion of the radiologic studies used to evaluate pleural disease is beyond the scope of this chapter. A brief overview of imaging modalities include point of care bedside ultrasound, plate film chest radiography is an important initial test in the assessment of a pleural effusion. Standard posterior anterior PA and lateral chest X-ray can verify laterality of an effusion and provide general information regarding its size. A lateral decubitus plane film in which the patient is positioned with the involved hemithorax in The dependent position can demonstrate if an effusion layers, that is if the effusion is free flowing as opposed to loculated. In addition, a lateral decubitus x ray characterizes the size of the effusion. Effusions with a distance of less than 1 cm between the chest wall and with the pleural line are likely too small to be safely drained. Chest CT can be used to assess the layering characteristics of effusions and provide detailed evaluation of complicated loculated effusions. Thickening of the pleural surfaces when observed. It's suggestive of an exudative process. Chest CT provides more precise characterization of pleural abnormalities, such as plaques or masses. Chest CT is usually warranted when an effusion is not free flowing on a lateral decubitus chest X-ray and or when more detailed characterization of the pleura, pleural space, and, pardon parenchyma is clinically indicated. Thoracic magnetic Resonance imaging MRI, has limited utility in evaluating plural effusions and pleural disease. One clinical exception is malignant mesothelioma for which MRI provides details regarding tumor extent. Point of care use of ultrasound has become increasingly common with the availability of bedside ultrasound machines. The efficacy of thoracic ultrasound varies widely with operator skill with experienced operators, however, ultrasound has demonstrated excellent sensitivity in identifying pleural effusion as compared to CT scans. Given that ultrasound does not expose patients to radiation and can be performed at the bedside, its use for assessment of effusions in the future is likely to increase. Indication for thoracocentesis not all patients who present with a effusion require thoracosynthesis. Patients presenting with CHF or a viral syndrome, for example, may not warrant thoracosynthesis and clinical observation while treating their underlying disease may be appropriate. Additionally, small effusions that cannot be safely accessed without prohibitive risk for procedural complications should be observed clinically. In general, however, thoracocentesis should be performed in most patients who present with a new pleural effusion for which the cause is uncertain, or the suspicion for a complicated parenchymal or malignant effusion is high. In the presence of contraindications to thoracocentesis, one may delay the procedure to minimize associated morbidity. Contraindications include thrombocytopenia that is a platelet count less than 25 to 50,000. Coagulopathy when the INR is greater than 1.5. In the uncooperative patient, when cellulitis or infection over the anticipated puncture site. In patients receiving positive pressure ventilation, that is increased risk of pneumothorax and complications. And in patients with only one lung where consequence of pneumothorax are more severe. Analysis of Plural Fluid. Originally described by Richard Light and colleagues in 1972, Light's criteria are commonly used to differentiate between transudative and exudative pleural effusion. Light's criteria for an exudative effusion include, one, ratio of a Plural Fluid protein concentration to serum protein concentration greater than 0.5. Ratio of Plural Fluid LDH concentration to serum LDH concentration greater than 0.6. And third, pleural fluid LDH concentration is greater than two thirds the upper limit of normal for serum LDH concentration. A plural effusion is defined as exudative if any one of the three criteria are met. In addition to characterizing the pleural fluid as transudative or exudative, Other specific pathologic processes can be diagnosed by pleural fluid analysis. For example, pleural fluid cholesterol can be used to differentiate between exudate and transudate. When the cholesterol in the pleural fluid is less than 45 milligrams per deciliter, it is consistent with the transudate. Pleural fluid albumin can be used to differentiate between transudate and exudate. If the pleural fluid albumin concentration is less than serum albumin concentration by greater than 1.2 grams per deciliter, then consider transudate. Pleural fluid pH is used to assess for complicated paramedic effusion or empyema. When the pleural fluid pH is less than 7.2, it obligates drainage when there's a suspicion for an infection and is associated with effusions and empyema. Low pH is also associated with rheumatoid effusions, tuberculosis effusion, or esophageal rupture. Plural fluid antiproBNP can be used to assess for congestive heart failure as a cause of an effusion. Plural fluid concentration of greater than 1300 nanograms per liter is consistent with a transidate due to CHF. Pleural fluid glucose is used to assess for complicated paranemonic effusion or empyema. When the plural fluid glucose concentration is less than 30 milligrams per deciliter, it's consistent with empyema or rheumatoid effusion. Plural fluid cell count is used to assess for malignancy and or atypical mycobacterial infection. When the plural fluid white blood cell count is greater than 10,000 and a neutrophil count of more than 80% is consistent with a complicated paranormal fluid or empyema. When the pleural fluid lymphocyte count is greater than 85%, it's consistent with lymphoma, TB, sarcoidosis, rheumatoid effusion, chylothorax, or yellow nail syndrome. When the pleural fluid SNFL count is of greater than 10%, it's common and relatively nonspecific. It may be associated with hemithorax, permeambolism, asbestos-related effusion, or parasitic or fungal disease. Plural fluid cytology is used to assess for malignancy, histopathologic or flow cytometric changes may diagnose cancer involving the plural space. Plural fluid triglycerides are used to assess for chylothorax. Triglyceride concentration of greater than 110 mg per deciliter is consistent with chylothorax and less than 15 mg per deciliter rules out chylothorax. Plural fluid ANA or anti-nuclear antibody is to assess for collagen vascular diseases. An ANA titer less than 1 to 80 is inconsistent with an effusion due to lupus. Plural fluid rheumatoid factor assess for collagen vascular diseases, specifically rheumatoid arthritis. When the rheumatoid factor is greater than 80 units per liter, it's consistent with the rheumatoid effusion. Plurid amylase is used to assess for effusion due to esophageal rupture or pancreatitis. When greater than 100 units per liter is abnormal and is consistent with esophageal rupture, pancreatitis and less likely to due to TB or malignancy. Plurid adenosine deaminase is used to assess for TB. When the adenosine deaminase is greater than 40 units per liter, it's consistent with an effusion due to tuberculosis. Plural fluid interferon gamma is used to assess for TB. When greater than 100 picograms per m- ml, it's highly specific for a TB effusion. Plural fluid hematocrit is used to assess for hemothorax. Plural fluid hematocrit that is greater than 50% of serum hematocrit is diagnostic of hemothorax. Analysis of Plural Pressures Assessing pleural pressures during thoracosynthesis provides important information about patient's pleural pathology and their clinical response to thoracosynthesis. While there are several different modalities with which to measure pleural pressures during thoracosynthesis, a standard U-shaped manometer is easy to use and has acceptable accuracy, assuming that pressure measurements are consistently made at the same phase during respiratory cycle, that is always measured at end expiration Normal pleural pressure at functional residual capacity is estimated to be between minus three centimeters and minus five centimeters of water. Excess fluid in the pleural space can be associated with fluctuations in the pleural pressure at functional residual capacity. In addition to the effects of excess pleural fluid and itself, pleural pressure fluctuations can result from pathophysiologic processes that resulted in excess pleural fluid. Very negative pleural pressures are a consequence of increased pleural elastance that is won by compliance as they are a consequence of the changes in the elastic properties of the pleura itself and the pleura's propensity to collapse or expand. For example, significant fibrosis of the visceral pleura will increase the pleura's propensity to recoil inward towards the hilum and limit its ability to expand Even with the removal of excess pleural fluid that is the compliance of the pleura is down and the elastance is up. As discussed earlier, this pathophysiologic process is referred to as trap lung in which the visceral pleura has become fibrotic with increased elastic recoil, usually due to chronic pleural inflammation. Under these conditions, transudative fluid accumulates in the pleural space due to very negative pleural pressure, which serves to pull intravascular fluid into the pleural space, that is increase the hydrostatic gradient. While the degree of pressure fluctuations can vary in trapped lung, prural pressures are generally very negative, that is less than 0.5, negative 0.5 centimeters of water. Lung entrapment is typically associated with an exudative effusion and is characterized by impaired expansion in the lung despite draining their fusion. Plural elastins may be normal at the beginning of thoracosynthesis, but it will become very high towards the end of thoracosynthesis as the lung cannot completely re-expand with the removal of pleural fluid. While removing pleural fluid during thoracosynthesis, one should intermittently assess pleural pressure. While there are no guidelines as how frequently pleural pressure should be measured, Checking after every 250 to 500 cc is drained is reasonable. Large changes in pleural pressure, however, indicate that pressure should be assessed more frequently to diagnose trapped lung or lung entrapment and to avoid complications such as re-expansion permeedema. Pleural pressure is more negative than minus 40 centimeters of water during thoracocentesis has been associated with increased risk of re-expansion permeedema and pleural pressure more positive than minus 20 centimeters of water is associated minimal risk. Given these data, standard practice is to abort thoracocentesis if pleural pressure is measured as more negative than minus 20 centimeters of water to minimize the risk of re-expansion pulmonary edema. Differential diagnosis and screening. Pathologic processes, causing pleural disease can be considered into three broad groups, pleural effusion, pneumothorax, and malignancies involving the pleura. Most pleural disease is secondary to other conditions, for example, congestive heart failure, pneumonia, metastatic cancer, rather than primary disease of the pleura. An individual patient's clinical circumstance will guide clinicians in developing a rational differential diagnosis for suspected pleural pathology. Specifically, screening for pleural disease is not necessary for majority of patients with conditions that could lead to proval pathologies. Screening for mesothelioma may be warranted in patients with significant past exposure to asbestos. However, the low prevalence of mesothelioma, even in high-risk patients, limits the efficacy of screening. And there's controversy as to whether risks of screening outweigh the benefits in this population. Chest CT is most widely used screening modality for mesothelioma. Although it's uncertain whether screening alters survival, serologic tests that is soluble mesothelin related protein, SMRP, osteopontin, and serum mesothelin, among others, have been assessed in small trials as a means of screening mesothelioma. However, there's a paucity of rigorous prospective data describing outcomes associated with these tests, and they're not commonly used. Complications. Patients with transudative effusions typically do not have long-term complications due to their effusions beyond the expected mechanical and physiologic effects of the effusion itself that is hypoxemia and dyspnea Patients with exudative effusions however are at increased risk of developing pleural fibrosis due to ongoing inflammation which may result in entrapped or trapped lung predicting which patients may be at risk for developing trapped lung is difficult. Consequently, prompt drainage of exudative pleural effusions and treatment of the causative process, that is pneumonia or malignancy is appropriate for majority of patients with a sizable exudative effusion. Natural history and prognosis. Transudative effusions typically progress in parallel with the course of the underlying disease. For example, patients with CHF who respond to diuresis and optimization for their cardiac function will likely experience a decrease in size or even resolution of their effusion. Exudative effusions typically require treatment of the underlying causative process and may necessitate drainage to avoid subsequent complications. Malignant mesothelioma warrants special consideration as it's associated with a dismal prognosis with an average survival after diagnosis of only one year Patients with good performance status and, and early stage disease may be candidates for aggressive treatment, including combination radical pruronemonectomy, intraoperative intraprurial chemotherapy and radiation therapy, in an effort to improve clinical outcomes. Quality of life, however, is lowered for many months after aggressive combination treatment and significant improvements in survival are limited in, to K-series. At best, 5-year survival is increased from 5 to 15% compared to no therapy. Treatment. In the absence of respiratory symptoms, simple transdative prolifusions are monitored clinically while optimizing treatment for the causative systemic disease. For example, diuresis should be optimized for patients with heart failure and cirrhosis to decrease capillary hydrostatic pressures and increased serum oncotic pressures, respectively. If dyspnea is significant, drainage of fluid may lead to almost immediate improvement in breathlessness. Exudative effusions may require more focus management, particularly in the setting of empyema and complicated paranormonic effusions. The presence of empyema obligates chest tube placement and evacuation of the infected pleural fluid. In addition, Patients typically receive a prolonged course, usually four to six weeks of antibiotics in an effort to adequately sterilize the pleural space. Drainage of exudative effusions, particularly complicated paramedic effusion with areas of loculation may be facilitated by instilling intrapleural TPA that is tissue plasminogen activator and DNAs which when used in combination have been demonstrated to improve drainage and decrease the need for surgical referral and mechanical debridement. Management of malignant pleural effusion is dependent on the pace and volume of pleural fluid reaccumulation after thoracosynthesis. Clinical monitoring may be sufficient for slowly accumulating small to moderate-sized effusions, particularly if a patient's life expectancy is limited or if the patient is initiating a course of chemotherapy the rate of reaccumulation of fluid may be an indicator of response to the cancer treatment. Pleural effusions causing respiratory symptoms may be managed by intermittent thoracocentesis, particularly if the effusion reaccumulates slowly, or placement of an indwelling pleural catheter to facilitate more frequent intermittent drainage without requiring serial thoracocentesis. Pleurodesis may be indicated for some patients with pleural effusions who have rapid reaccumulation of pleural fluid and who do not desire or cannot tolerate or have not responded to indwelling catheter drainage. Chemical pleurodesis may be performed by installation of irritant substances such as talc into the pleural space after drainage of pleural effusion to precipitate pleural irritation and inflammation, thereby promoting adherence of the visceral and parietal pleural surfaces. Mechanical pleurodesis is performed surgically typically via video associated thoracoscopic surgery or VATS and involves physically scraping the pleural surfaces to induce inflammation and promote visceral and parietal adherence. Due to the consequent intense inflammation of the innervated parietal pleura, chemical and mechanical pleurodesis are associated with significant periprocedural pain. And close attention to patient's analgesia is critical. Some pleural diseases, such as strap lung, are not amenable to pleurodesis, since visceral and parietal pleura do not come into contact despite drainage of fluid. Such conditions are notoriously difficult to treat. Some patients may require placement of a pleuroperitoneal shunt to continuously drain fluid from the pleural space into the peritoneum, in an effort to minimize the accumulation of excess pleural fluid. Shunt occlusion and other shunt-related complications may occur. Finally, individual pleural diseases may require specific and focused interventions. For example, while mesothelioma is associated with limited survival, some patients may benefit from aggressive combined chemotherapy and surgical interventions. Treatment of pneumothorax depends on its size and associated symptoms. A small pneumothorax may be monitored clinically while providing increased FiO2, which facilitates reabsorption of air from the pleural space, whereas a large pneumothorax with tension physiology requires immediate decompression. When to refer to a specialist? Patients with a new unexplained pleural effusion generally should undergo diagnostic thoracocentesis to determine the nature and, if possible, precise cause of the pleural effusion. Patients with a simple transudative pleural effusion can be typically managed clinically by primary care providers by focusing on causative systemic disease. In contrast, patients with an exudative effusion may need more focused treatment, including chest tube placement and evacuation approval space for complicated effusions or empyema. Patients with pleural malignancy, whether mesothelioma or metastatic disease should be referred for Oncologic Evaluation. This podcast is derived from an outstanding chapter on plural disease in Baliger's textbook of internal medicine available at www.mastermedfacts.com. It's authored by Dr. Jeremy Richards, who is an assistant professor at Harvard Medical School and an attending at the Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. And the senior author is Dr. Richard M. Shortstein who is the chief of the division of primary and critical care medicine at the Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center and the Ellen and Melvin Gordon Professor of Medicine and Medical Education at Harvard Medical School.